Hey, good morning. Kip and I spent an afternoon looking through some of the Psalms this week to talk about how we declare the wonders of God. Uh, Stuff like what Kip read right there, or Psalm 105, verse 1, that let the whole world know uh, what God has done. Because when you read those kind of verses in the Psalms or in the New Testament, when it talks about how um, the the Great Commission and places where the church and the love of God compels us, this isn't for the quote-unquote professionals or those who've been through seminary or those who are full-time ministers. It's people who've been redeemed by God have a story to tell. And I want to go to my grave doing everything I can, spending my time and energy trying to convince people who've been redeemed by God, that if you have a story to tell about salvation, you have a story to tell the world about what God has done. Um, That if you have a story to tell of God's saving love, capturing you and taking you from someone who was lost to someone who was found, you have a a story to tell others. Uh, Andrea did it. That's what she just did up here on the stage. uh, I don't think I'll ever forget a communion thought about being a fatherless child, yet standing up here on Father's Day declaring she's not a a fatherless child. She has a story to tell, and she just told us this story. Uh, so Casey and I just took our 15th anniversary trip, had a blast. It was June 2nd of 2008 that we crossed the Mississippi River, making Memphis our home, and on June 2nd of this year, as we celebrated nine years here, we found ourselves walking the streets of Rome. We visited Rome and Athens and Pompeii and places where early Christianity, uh, maybe it wasn't the birthplace of it, but it was a place where in the infancy stage of early Christianity, a place where the church grew up and was challenged in places where the church grew. And it was cool that we got to stand in places where Paul and Peter and these great sermons were preached and where many Christians died for the name of Jesus. And, and, and I mean, there, there are times we've been up to like the Northeast. We visited places like Boston and there's this American history, at least American history that many of us read about in schools. It goes back maybe, what, 250 years? I mean, I've stood at the place where Paul Revere said, one if by land, two if by sea, three if by air, four if by drone. Uh, uh, some of you, have, you, you won't even get that, all right? But you've, like, there's American history, but you go over to places like Rome and Athens and places in Europe, you're standing on history that goes back thousands of years. Uh, and we got to go on these tours where we saw where emperors, Emperor Claudius and Julius Caesar, where they were buried or places where memorials were held for them. And you hear about these, like, legends, people who shaped nations, who led massive armies. And then you see where their funeral was or where they were buried, knowing that their bodies decayed. And now tourists can go and view that stuff. Yet we stand in here today serving Jesus who went into a grave, but his body didn't decay there. He's alive. And when it comes to Jesus, there aren't tourists who go to look at a museum. As if here's someone who did something a long time ago, it's Jesus who's still alive and active and moving. And Christianity's thriving and it's growing. You go to places in Europe and you visit churches and cathedrals and many of them are museums now. I mean, you basically walk through and there's not much of a vibrant life there anymore. And that's what happens when the church forgets its mission or the church becomes more about doctrine and less about living out the good news of Jesus. So I want to lay in front of us today is what the good news compels us to do and how it calls us to live. That when the people of God are available and willing 
and they're working in companionship with God. It's that God wants to use any person God has saved uh, to be light and salt in this world. So Casey and I, we, we were on a, a cruise ship, and there was one afternoon, uh, and, and even as we were getting on this ship, there were times Casey and I would just pray these prayers of God, look, we're here to rest and to have fun and enjoy married life, and, and we're here just to have a blast. But if there are ways you want to use this this week, we want to be open to it. And there was one afternoon, Casey wanted to go lay out by the pool. I was about to go to the gym, yet I opened up uh, my new little Bible, all right? And I opened it up, and I was just feasting on the Word, and I just felt compelled in my spirit that God was saying, hey, I don't want you to read in the Word. I want you to go out and read somewhere uh, where, where there are people. And I, and I kind of laid that before the Lord for a moment of, okay, God, is this, is this, is this you speaking to me or is it me? Is my mind just playing you know, tricks on me? And as I sat there, I felt compelled that I needed to go. So I went to a lounge. And I sat down in a lounge. I was in my workout gear, had my earbuds in, listening to the new Hillsong United album, had my Bible out. And I was in a lounge. There were people around me sipping on martinis and scotch and and. And I just opened up the Gospel of Luke, and I was feasting. And I, and I just happened to be in the Gospel of Luke where it talks about how the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I was reading chapter 11 and chapter 12 and 13, listening to music, just having this moment with the Lord. And then I felt this tap on my shoulder, and it was this middle-aged guy. He was middle-aged. He's pretty old. He's probably 41 or 42, all right? Uh, <clears throat> I'm just joking. Just messing, man. <laughs> He's a middle-aged guy. This dude's in his 50s, all right? And he said, uh, hey, I noticed you, you're reading your Bible. And I said, yeah. He said, can I sit down for a minute? I said, yeah. He said, uh, what are you reading? I said, I'm, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but I'm reading the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And he said, what are you reading? And I started telling him about what I was reading. And this is a guy who was a chaplain in the military a while back. And he sat there and he told me about how some experiences in his life have led him recently to lose faith in, in life, in humanity, to lose faith in the church, and close to losing faith in God. And we sat there and we just talked about Jesus, and he asked questions, and I answered the questions that I could answer, and we just had this, this dialogue and this moment of encouragement. And it really is amazing when we are available and willing and open to be used by God, what God will do. I think a lot of times what God wants is, hey, will you just cooperate with me this week? Just cooperate and see what I'll do. All right, so this morning I want to launch into this new series. It's a six-week series called Streams. Um, and, and, I and I've wanted to do this series for a long time. And I want to talk about different streams of, of, of God's heart. This isn't streams of other religions. It's streams of God's heart. Uh, it's going to be a six-week journey. I'm going to talk just a little bit more in a moment, some other opportunities we're going to have over the next few weeks for us to engage in some conversations that I think will be really meaningful to us. Because here's the deal, all right? I've talked about the like, difference between physical location and social location. Because social location goes something like this. Uh, that when it comes to us understanding God, it's not just that we come to the Bible to learn about Him, we do, but we're bringing all of our life experiences, we're bringing history, we're bringing context, we're bringing all the questions of our lives. So when you, like right now, if you pick up the Bible, you're not coming to the Bible with a blank slate, you're coming to the Bible with different experiences and forms of pain in your life and so much of our worldview that, that, that all plays into it. So social location is that I'm in front of you today as as a white American male who was raised in a two-parent home, a fairly healthy home, 
in Dallas, Texas. I've lived in Texas or Memphis my entire life. I'm married. This year I celebrate bringing a dad for, for a decade, for 10 years. And all of these things play a part in my social context. They are my experiences. I cannot escape them. They shape and form how I read the Bible because I'm asking questions about life based on my experiences. And I have to be aware of this. Okay, I have a social location, you have a social location, and not only that, churches do too. Churches have their own experiences, and churches have become who they are because of certain questions they wrestled with or who they wanted to become or because how God was leading them, or some churches become who they are because they know who they don't want to be. We don't want to be like that anymore, so we're gonna, we, we want God to lead us to become like this. So if you'll go to that next slide, over the next few weeks, here's, here are some of the things we're going to talk about, and, and I want to... I want to be really careful because I know words and phrases are loaded, right? So some of this is based, a lot of this is based off a book, Richard Foster, a guy who's been writing on spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation for a long time. And he writes about six streams of Christian thought. And so every week I want to root this in the Bible, talk a little bit about how we are, who we are. And here are some of the things we're going to talk about. The evangelical tradition, the holiness tradition, charismatic tradition, uh, the contemplative social justice, and incarnational. And you may look up there and you may see some of those words and you're like, yeah, that kind of defines who I am. Or you may look up right now and you see some of these words and you're like, I don't want to step into that stream because I've seen charismatics on TBN and I don't want to be like that. Or uh, social justice is too politically driven. Or I, I, I want to help give a biblical base for who these are because there are strands of Christianity that you can find in all of these. In the United States of America, you can find churches of Christ who would find themselves in one of these streams more than the others. All right, and uh, as I'm in this series, as we're in this series, this isn't about, okay, where do we put the Baptist church or the Methodist church? This isn't me asking you to go from being a church of Christ to understand who the Methodists are or Baptists or Assemblies of God. This isn't that. This is God has personalities. God has a big heart. His ways are higher than our ways. And what I want to help teach us is if you get locked into a stream and refuse to ever put your foot into another stream, you may be missing out on God. You may be missing out on the Spirit because sometimes what we've done with the Spirit is we've said, we don't know what to do with the Spirit. So as long as I just have faith in Jesus, maybe God will have mercy on me for not really having an understanding who the Spirit is. But I want more for you than that. Um. The way streams work a lot is sometimes if you dive into a stream, you get to know that stream well. It's like a swimming pool. Some of you have a pool and you go to it, or you had a, a river or a lake that you visit, and you know that place well. You know where you go into the stream and where you come out. You know where you can jump into the stream and where it's too shallow. So you know like all the nuances of what that place is. And sometimes you become so familiar and so comfortable with the stream that you don't want to go anywhere else. Um... So the way it works with my boys is we've been to a few water parks before. I remember the first water park we went to. This was a few years ago. And as soon as we walked into the water park, boom, there was this pool. It was the kiddie pool. Uh, and in that kiddie pool, there was, you could run around. It was knee deep, maybe ankle deep. You could splash around. There was some, you know, waters flying up in the air. And there was a six-foot slide, and my boys were having a blast. 
And they were like seven and five, so they didn't really fit in the kiddie pool anymore. But they came into a water park. They had heard there was a water park. They were having fun. But I knew if we just cross over this bridge right here, then we go into the rest of the water park where there are bigger slides and wave pools. And, and there are tubes we can jump in and all kinds of rides we can do. So when I told them, hey, Truett and Noah, it's time for us to go to the water park, they start throwing a fit because they didn't want to leave what they were having fun in. And I want to be like, if you just go with me on the other side of the bridge, there's so much more that you need to discover. And I just don't want us to get locked into something and we miss out on parts of God. All right, um, uh, the way I've described it before is there's the zoo in uh, Colorado where they were making a brand new polar bear exhibit at the zoo. So what they had to do for months, if not over a year, is they had to put that polar bear in a separate cage as they formed this whole new place for this polar bear. And in that little cage, the polar bear had enough room to walk three steps and then turn around. And could walk three steps and then it would turn around. And when they set the polar bear free in this brand new exhibit with all this new stuff to play with, you know what the polar bear did, right? Three steps, turned around, three steps, and turned around. This whole new adventure, yet this polar bear had gotten locked into a certain way of doing things. God is not anti-comfort. I think God likes comfort. The Bible talks about comfort. God is not anti-comfort, but he, isn't, he also isn't always comfort. And there are times he's leading us to learn something new about his heart and about his ways. Each one of these traditions you see on the, on the screen are rooted in Jesus. They began in Jesus. You have verses in the gospel that tell you about who they are and why they exist, and there are things we can learn from them. So what we're going to do uh, over the next few weeks is um, you're going to have life groups. If you're in a life group, if you want to be in a life group and you're not, ask us, go to the Connection Center afterwards. But life groups will be discussing a lot of the sermons. And, and as well as next week, we're going to start a six-week study. So I'm preaching it today. Next Sunday, there are going to be two Bible classes where we're inviting everyone to, to join in two Bible classes over the next six weeks. So teachers are going to have some time off. And these classes are going to be led by our shepherds. They're going to be talking about the sermon I preached today, about uh, some of the stuff Richard Foster wrote about, about the Bible, about their own experiences. So it's going to be a way for us as a church to join in a multi-generational setting, to make new friends, and to join in to what I think will be very healthy discussions. This morning, I want to unpack just a moment, just a few moments, the evangelical tradition. Now, especially coming out of a political season, and you hear the word evangelical. Some people have heard this so many times from MSN, Fox News, CNN, that you think evangelical, you think Republican Party, conservatives, all right? I need to help you understand, just for a moment, uh, I need to give you a better understanding of what evangelical tr tradition, what it is and what it's rooted in. Three things. When you think about evangelical, over the next few weeks, I want you to think about this. Three things. One is a faithful proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, it's a faithful proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and when you think gospel, I don't want you thinking of plan of salvation or a prayer you pray. When you think gospel, it's the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. All right, so one thing, one thing to know about evangelicalism, about the evangelical tradition, is it is a faithful proclamation of Jesus. Number two, it is scripture-based, Bible-based. From the very beginnings 
of what evangelical means. It was rooted in the Bible. It's churches who, who read the Bible, study the Bible, love the Bible, crave the Bible. If you look today of churches who find themselves in an evangelical stream, they are churches who have Bible classes, Wednesday night classes, Bible groups, that study groups, and meet all throughout the week, all right? They want to immerse themselves in the Word of God. The third thing about the evangelical tradition is, at some point, there is an invitation. There is a continual invitation into a conversion experience. Some people use phrases like conversion or born again or uh, baptism, confession. It's the moment when you trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. So there is a personal decision that we make to enter into relationship with God. Now, maybe you've seen the phrase before, to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it's a phrase that we love. Because it's a phrase that embodies like, hey, the gospel isn't just something you say, it's something you live out. And I love the phrase, I've quoted the phrase, uh, yet I also don't want people to think that's the only thing the gospel is. Like the gospel really is, it's about words that you need to speak. It's about things you say, preaching, proclamation, talking to people, using words and how you talk to people about the gospel matters, and it's a big deal. So here's what I struggled with over the last few weeks is I was like, what am I going to root this in biblically? Because I can think of great preachers in the Bible, Peter and Paul, and even though Moses seemed to have a speech impediment, the dude could preach, all right? He could speak to the masses. So I I struggle because I could lay those before you, and I think a lot of us could read about Peter and Paul, and we can be like, yeah, great sermons, but I don't really know if my life is going to line up with that. Some of us aren't going to find ourselves on Mars Hill or studying with philosophers about the good news of Jesus. So let me introduce you to someone who I think can be a companion for you today. Um, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story about Peter's conversion, the way they tell the story is that Peter was fishing and Jesus found him and invited him into a conversion moment, invited him to come and follow Jesus. But John lets you in on a little secret because John gives you details about how Peter came to know the Lord. And it wasn't like Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about it. I want you to look in your Bibles. Go to John chapter 1. I want to show you three places in John that talk about this other guy that maybe you don't know much about other than his name. And in John chapter 1, in verse 40, here's what you see. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of these men who heard what John had said, and then he followed Jesus. And Andrew went to find his brother Simon, and he told him, we have found the Messiah, Jesus, which means the Christ. And in verse 42, it says, then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. And looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. What Andrew does here is he has this encounter with Jesus, and it's Andrew who goes to find his brother, Simon, who would later be called Peter, and says, I have been introduced to someone who has radically changed my life, and I need to introduce you to him too. It's Andrew who brings Peter. And though Peter becomes this great person of faith, one of, if not the primary leader of the early church. It's Andrew who takes like second fiddle, like plays second fiddle to his brother, and he doesn't seem to resent it. Let me show you two other places where Andrew shows up. In John chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, this is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. This is when Jesus said, hey, did anybody have any fish or bread around here? And it's Andrew who brings a boy to Jesus. And says, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. 
And he even says in the moment, like, I don't know what good this is. The crowd's big. This is all I have. But it's still Andrew who brings this little kid in the presence of Jesus. In John chapter 12, in verse 20 and 22, you have this, it's really a beautiful moment. Where what you have is you have uh, some Greeks, some Gentiles, some non-Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. And Philip goes to tell Andrew about it, and they went together to introduce these non-Jews to Jesus. That's a powerful moment. Because Philip's not really sure what to do. Because these are non-Jews, so are you allowed to invite, at the time, non-Jews to meet Jesus? Yet it's Andrew who ushers them into the presence of Jesus. If, If somebody were to ask you, or even when you discuss later on in life groups, what do we know about Andrew? What you know about Andrew is he was Peter's brother, but I think the primary thing that sums up who Andrew is is this. He had the gift of introducing people to Jesus. You don't have to be somebody who steps up on a stage like me to introduce others to Jesus. You don't have to be somebody who knows Genesis through Revelation in your Bible, word for word. You don't have to have a degree. If you have been touched by God, You have been empowered by God through His Spirit to introduce somebody to Jesus. Uh, In my life, I love introducing the people to other people who can make a difference in their lives, who can make their lives better. Mark Taylor is so good at this. He does this almost every week. Some of you do too. If I know a mechanic and you're in need of a mechanic, I want to help make a connection. If um, you need a doctor and I know a doctor, I want to help connect you. When, sometimes when I lead people through premarital counseling and they want an older married couple to mentor them, I love making connections like that. Sometimes young men, women or men will contact me and they want a mentor, a, someone who can disciple them. And I love making these connections. When people move to Memphis, I got an email a couple of days ago. Somebody from East Tennessee is moving to Memphis. And I love taking those people in by email, by phone call when they get here. I love meeting up with them. I want to introduce them to all things Memphis. What restaurants to eat at, where they need to go, what the Levitt Shell is about, the museum, Stax Museum, Sun Studio, what the best times are to go to Gus's Fried Chicken, because everyone needs to go to Gus's. But you need to know the best times to go to Gus's, all right? That rendezvous is a great atmosphere, but I don't think it's the best barbecue in town. These are things I want to impart on people, all right? And I want to introduce them to all things Memphis. And we can be so quick to introduce people to local restaurants or breweries or coffee shops or introduce people to people, yet why are we so slow sometimes to introduce people to Jesus? If Jesus has the power to break chains and we know people who are chained, why don't we make this introduction? If we know people who are restless and we know Jesus can bring peace to the restless, why sometimes do we subscribe and encourage people to, hey, you need to take some Tylenol PM so you can rest better or drink a glass of wine at night or uh, watch a movie, watch Netflix instead of introducing them to Jesus. If we know people are lost and we know Jesus loves saving people, why don't we make this introduction? Because we can't believe in the good news on Sunday morning yet not live the good news on Monday. You can't believe in the good news yet then immerse yourselves in the bad news. You can't believe in the good news, yet live the bad news. 
Evangelion, which is the word, means that the good news that we do not have to live outside of the covenant of God has been offered to us and that Jesus has atoned for our sins and we don't have to carry the weight and the burden and the guilt of it anymore, that God specializes in redemption and reconciliation. And the strength of what the word and the phrase and the meaning of evangelical is, is that repentance is available to all, that God wants to save all, and that the church has now become this light and this salt which permeates the world to let others know about this good news. The weakness of the evangelical tradition is this, that for those of us, and I would put churches of Christ, not all of us in the evangelical tradition, but we've been shaped and formed by it. The weakness of it is this, that sometimes in the evangelical tradition, we're more concerned about making converts than we are making disciples. The Great Commission is not about going to the world and win converts. It's not to go into the world and create as many conversion moments as you can. But you go into the world and you make disciples. You teach people to follow in the ways of Jesus. It's that sometimes another weakness is that we have focused on the moments and not the movement. That we have focused sometimes too much on the destination and not the adventure. Sometimes we have interpreted the gospel, that the gospel is about salvation. But when you hear Jesus talk about the gospel, is that the gospel is about the kingdom of God, which includes a salvation. But the kingdom of God is about the reign of God that wants to enter into every person, every community, the whole world. At times in the evangelical tradition, we can lock into a way of salvation or a way of doing church and we can become very legalistic about how we go about doing things. And in an evangelical tradition, which takes the Bible so seriously, a word Richard Foster uses is sometimes we suffer from what he calls bibliolatry. Instead of idolatry, it's that we think too much of the Bible and not as much as Jesus. And I don't want to minimize the Bible, but it is possible. And sometimes we have proclaimed the Bible more than we've proclaimed Jesus. That the mission isn't to give the world the Bible. The mission is to give the world Jesus. The ultimate authority in this world is not the Bible. The ultimate authority is Jesus and who the Bible points to. And what this tradition does is it teaches us that the Spirit of God invades an individual and empowers them to be God's people in the world that if you have a story to live because of Jesus, you have a story to tell. I've told you before, one of the greatest evangelists I've known in my life is a guy named Mike Tollison. He was a guy who grew up in a pretty legalistic church outside of Houston, Texas. And he sometimes tells the stories of hearing sermons, sometimes entire sermons on that if you speed today out on the road, God gives you a two-mile-per-hour grace period, but after that, you could go to hell. All right, He remembers hearing sermons like this. And he was a guy that early on in his life, he was so driven to make money and to launch a business, which would become CC's Pizza. He was so driven by this that he threw out faith and church and became an alcoholic and was a verbally abusive husband. And then he met Jesus. And he started reading the Bible, and he saw this work of God and the grace of God in his life that he knew he wanted to live for him, whatever he did. He never became a full-time preacher. He never went to school. But he transformed the CC's Pizza outside of Dallas, Texas, into a mission field. He hired me my senior year of high school. I needed some money before I went to college. 
And I took the job because he was a guy in our church who loved the Lord. He converted all four of his managers to Jesus. So it was just this mission field. Every night when we would close down CC's, there would be Bible studies happening there. Thousands of people have been baptized into Christ in their entrance into who Jesus was by coming in and eating at a buffet. How about that? And he's a guy who would raise up people. He would raise up managers and employees and others, and he would teach them. If you have a story about God saving you, you have a story to tell a neighbor. And people believed it. Casey and I were uh, second day on our cruise. We loved just getting to know people. And the guy who would clean our room was from, uh, from the Caribbean. And this guy met us in the hallway on the second day, and he stopped us, and he said, I'm not supposed to ask this question, but are you believers? And we said, well, yeah, we are. How did you know? And I said, was it my Bible on the nightstand? And he said, I saw your Bible when I was cleaning. But it wasn't that. And he looked at my wife, and he wasn't being flirtatious at all. He looked at Casey, and he said, when I saw you and I looked in your eyes, I knew there was something different about you. And I was like, brother, did you not see that in my eyes? You know, <laughs> like, oh. Look again, man. What do you see? <clears throat> he looked. He said, I, I could see it in your eyes and your smile that you're a woman who has something else inside of you. Don't you want to live that kind of way? Where you, just the love of God just radiates off of who you are to where people begin asking questions about what is different about you. It was Augustine who once said, one loving heart sets another heart on fire. Memphis and Shelby County needs that. So here's what we're going to do today. We've done this before at some uh, special worship services that we've had, and maybe once on a Sunday, I can't remember. But uh, up front, you may see some of these candles. And uh, Kip, do you mind lighting the two bigger ones? And here's why we're going to light the two bigger ones, because sometimes when we do this, we use the lighters, and some of us just struggle lighting those things, and you spend more time trying to get the lighter on than... Uh, than uh, lighting a candle. Here's what we're going to do. I want to invite you. We're going to sing a couple of songs. If, if you're the shepherds, will you go ahead? Uh, if you're one of our shepherds and you're in a prayer, one of our positions to receive people for prayer, will you go to your places now? I just want people to see where you are. Because as we sing a couple of songs, you may think of someone in your life that today's a day you would love for them to hear, that have the stirring of God in their life, that the light of God will shine in their life that they'll hear the invitation of God. And uh, I invite you to come up here, and, and Kip's going to kind of model. You can take one of the, the smaller ones, and that's how we're going to light them, okay? And it just represents someone in your life that you are laying before the Lord as we sing these songs that the light of God will shine on their life. And what you may choose to do is you see people who are receiving folks is you may just want to go to one of our prayer leaders, one of our shepherds, and just tell them the name of a person that you would love for them to be praying about that, that they'll hear the invitation of the gospel, the invitation of God to come and come closer to Jesus. Uh, so we invite you to the front. We're going to stand and we're going to sing these two songs. Invite you to come and light one, light a couple if you need to. You may light it for yourself. We don't need to know. Just your movement is confession in itself. Just as a church, may we pray as we sing these songs and lift up these songs to God in a way that we are declaring that, God, we want you to use us to be light and salt, to offer up Jesus to this world, to introduce someone to Jesus this week in some kind of way. So let's stand together, let's sing, let's cry out. It's a declaration and a confession today.